So I don't often do this. Uh, I don't often just read something when, I, when I'm starting a sermon or when I'm in a sermon. But this particular story, um, it hit me pretty strongly. And I, I wanted to just, I, I couldn't say it better than what he's, he wrote it. Uh, th- this is, it's called Luke for Everyone. It's a commentary series by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is an Anglican bishop in England uh, who has, um, he, he says a lot of good stuff. <laughs> and so I would recommend N.T. Wright. He's, he's written a number of books. But I want to read a story. So he is a bishop from England, like I said, but he travels around the world and he speaks. And uh, this is a, a story that he wrote. I sat in the airport for two hours, waiting for my onward flight. I had come into New York on a flight from England, and I was tired and eager to catch the connection to Washington, to get to where I was staying, and to rest for the night. Finally, the small plane began to board. My seat had been confirmed, and I knew it was near the plane door, so I waited until almost everyone had got on. As I approached the gate, to my horror, the attendant shut it in my face. He apologized profusely and said he hated this part of his job. Due to some obscure regulation, he said this flight only allowed a certain number of people on board, and that number had already been seated. What about my confirmed seat, I asked, showing him the ticket, which he himself had stamped as valid, Some while before. Yes, he said. I know how you must feel. I am so sorry. (laughs) He may have been sorry, but I was furious. I was too tired to make further protest, but wrote an angry letter to the airline and was eventually rewarded with a $100 free travel voucher to use in the next couple of months which, of course, was no good to someone living in another continent. I don't remember what time I got to bed that night, but I made a resolution never again to hang back when boarding a small airplane. Lord, as we open up your word today, it is with a sense of expectation. God, we ask that you would speak to us We ask that your word would become alive, as it only can when you are involved. Help us, Lord. Amen. Please turn to Luke chapter 13. So we are continuing on in our series in Luke. Last week, I only preached on three verses, but I think that those three verses were meaningful. Uh, if you didn't have a chance to, to connect in with last week's message, I hope you'll take time to go back on YouTube and, and have a listen. I think the Lord had something important last week, and I think the Lord has something important again for us this week. So we pick up the story, Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. Luke chapter 13, 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, 
Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to do so. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and, taught in our, and, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Um, Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Today, we have a story that should cause you to sit up in your seat and pay attention. A story that will cause you to sit up and pay attention. Make no mistake. This is a warning from Jesus for the people he was speaking to, but it was also a warning for us. The context of this passage is Jesus heading to Jerusalem. You may remember that I told you that the structure of the Gospel of Luke is such that Jesus is portrayed as heading toward Jerusalem. Or setting out toward Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Remember back in Luke chapter 9 verse 51. This is when Jesus starts toward Jerusalem. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now theologically this is significant as Jesus recognized what Jerusalem held for him. Jesus knew Jerusalem held death for him. But Jesus also knew that Jerusalem was going to be the place not just of death, but also of resurrection and victory. Jesus doesn't actually arrive in Jerusalem all the way until chapter 19. So if you think about the structure of the book of Luke, he starts in chapter 9 heading toward Jerusalem, and for 10 chapters, He's heading toward Jerusalem. And if you get to, to chapter 19, 
that's when you get to the, the triumphal entry. And look at, this is the, the, what I'm going to show you here is chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. This is the end of the story of the triumphal entry. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's the end of the story of the triumphal entry. And of course, Jesus here is, he's actually prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, which was going to happen about 35 years later in 70 AD, when literally one stone was not left upon another. The temple was destroyed completely by the Romans. Not one stone was left upon another. So all of this teaching, the 10 chapters of teaching, that Jesus does as he goes toward Jerusalem, Luke chapters 9 through 19. That entire section of teaching has the Passion Week of Jesus, the Easter week in mind. So as we look at, and that's where we're going to be, we're in chapter 13. We're right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, and all of the teaching of Jesus in those 10 chapters looks toward the Passion Week of Jesus. Thinking about that and reading this section that we've just read, it really helps us bring into focus what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 13, verses 33 through 35. So let's go back to Luke 13 and read it again. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. Three days. Did you catch that? Jesus is talking about his three days when he's going to be in the grave. Like all the way back in chapter 13. You see how this, the Passion Week and the three days of his death are in focus even all the way back in chapter 13. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. I mean, he, he literally is saying, I've got three days, and then I'm, I'm, you see that? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look. Your house is left to, to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' desire is that Jerusalem would recognize who he is. That's what he wants. Now, he, he knows most Jews will not recognize who he is. Most of the people who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the king, the king of David. I mean, he, he, he's the promised one. I mean, Messiah means the anointed one. They don't recognize him as the king. And because of that, they're going to miss out on the chance to experience true peace. Shalom. The kind of peace that is wholeness of life contentment, peace. All of that thing that we long for is found in the Messiah. And it's with this backdrop of Jesus wanting Jerusalem to recognize who he is, wanting Jerusalem to experience shalom. It's in that backdrop that we read 
Luke 13. And it's with that backdrop in mind that we can understand what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of a narrow door. You see, Jesus is teaching on the narrow door. It starts with a question. Did you, did you hear the question? It, it, I read it once. It, it's a really good question. Look again at verses, uh, Luke 13, verses 22 and 23. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now I wonder, have you ever thought about this? If you could compile a top 10 list of questions that you could ask Jesus, like if you would have been there, right? If you would have been in the presence of Jesus physically, like listening to him teach, what would be the top 10 questions you would ask him? I think there's a pretty good chance that question makes the top 10 list. I'm really thankful that whoever asked that question asked the question because it's a good question. I mean, the question really is, how many people are going to get it right and be saved? And of course, this question implies the opposite, doesn't it? It implies the flip side of the question, which is, how many people are going to get it wrong and not be saved? Right? A good question. Now, I just want you to pause. I know I've already read through this once, but I want you just to pause and and put yourself in the crowd, okay? Because it says, you know, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way through to Jerusalem. So let's just pretend you're just one of the people in one of those towns, and here comes Jesus, right? So you're just kind of minding your own business. So Jesus comes along, and he's, he's teaching and preaching, and so you're like, well, I've heard about this Jesus guy. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go have a listen to what he has to say. So you show up, and Jesus is teaching, and you're just kind of standing there listening to Jesus, and then you're like, well, he's, he's, kind, of, he's kind of saying that there's, there's like salvation on the line here, like, like there's the choice between death and life here. I wonder, how many people are actually going to be saved? And so you're like, Jesus, Jesus, I got a question. Um, Lord, is there just going to be like just a few people saved? Now, are you there? Are you there? Are you part of that audience? Did you raise your hand and ask this question? Now, let me ask you something. What would you expect Jesus's answer to be? Talk about that with someone next to you. Go ahead. All right. So I've been asking you to do this a little bit more when, I, when I'm giving 
the message. And some of you, some of you, when I ask you to do this, you go like this. Okay? So can I at least explain why I'm asking you to do this? Um, studies show that uh, people actually retain only about 10% of what is just spoken to them. Right? Where if I can get you to, like, engage a different part of your brain, right? Like the communication verbal part, it jumps up to, like, 25%. So I'm literally trying to sweep cobwebs out of your brain so that you might have a chance of remembering a little more of what I'm trying to say to you. That's why I do this thing. When So like I really, like, pastor's just supposed to preach and I'm just supposed to sit here. Okay, if that's you and you've got this like mental thing in your brain that you're not going to participate, okay, that's your choice. You can do that and that's okay. But you'll remember more of the word by engaging with another person around you. So that's why I'm doing that. And I'm not mad at you if you don't do it. So don't be like, oh, now pastor's picking on me. or what. I, It's okay, okay? I'm not telling you have to. I'm just saying it's an opportunity for you to, like, get your, your brain more engaged in the word. That's it. Okay. So what, what would you expect Jesus to say in answer to that question? Here's something Jesus could have said. So here's the question. Jesus, uh, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus could have answered with a real number. I, well, in answer, to you, in answer to your question, 1,423,567,999 people are going to be saved. And it's going to take about 2,100 years. I so wish Jesus would have given us an answer like that. Wouldn't that be nice? Because we could just count it down. Wouldn't that be great? Obviously, Jesus isn't much for giving us a countdown. Right? But he could have. He could have given a real number. Now, he didn't give a real number. It's just not the way he works. But there is something else Jesus could have done. And this is what I would have thought Jesus would have said. Okay? So, Jesus... Are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus could have said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Do you know why I know Jesus could have said that? Because I literally read the words of Jesus. Just not from this passage. Like, those are the words of Jesus from Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus literally said that. He literally said, like, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. I I will help you carry your burden. Come to me. So, like, the question, Lord, are are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus could have said, my way is light. And, of course, the implication there is... Lots of people are going to be saved. You just got to, I'll help you carry your burden. Right? Right? I mean, wouldn't you expect, like the Jesus that you have in your brain, like when you, when you hear the word Jesus, the picture that comes in your brain is probably Jesus saying, let the little children come to me. Right? I, I, my, my way is light. I, come, come. I, I will help you. Right? Well, I think Jesus also could have said something like this. He could have said this. He could have said, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
He could have said that. Like, so the, the question, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? I can tell you who's going to be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I know that Jesus could have said that because guess what? That's scripture again. Not from Jesus, but from Paul. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And of course, Paul in Romans 10, 13, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul was quoting from Joel, right? So like Jesus could have said that, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus could have said, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Like the, the, the path is, is easy. See, Jesus could have said, the path is easy. Jesus could have said, the door is big. The door is wide open. Come on. Come on, everybody. Come to salvation. It's simple. It's easy. It's, you, you, you don't even really have to work for it. You, you could just, just show up. Why don't you just show up and sit in a chair and look at the back of people's heads? And that's all that's required. That got your attention, didn't it? So what did Jesus actually say? Let's read that again, shall we? Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, verse 24, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, let me in! Please, please, let me in, let me in! Let me in! But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? (laughs) Jesus' answer, very surprisingly to me, is the door is narrow. Many will try to enter it, but won't be able to. And besides that, not only is the door narrow, but the owner of the house is going to close it. It's not just narrow, it's about to be closed. That's the answer Jesus gave to that question. You know, this is one of those moments when our modern version of churchy Christianity doesn't match the words of the one we claim to worship. Did you hear that? This is one of those moments when our modern version of churchy Christianity doesn't match the words of the Christ. Today, think about the church today. Think about the church today. We are pleading with people, come to church, please come to church. We need you, please, please, please. please. We need you. If we can just get people through the door of that church, if we can just somehow get their butts in these seats, we'll have arrived. Then we're really doing good as a church. 
Just think if we just got all of those butts in those seats, then we really made it. Yay! In fact, why don't we just aim at getting people to give God the absolute least amount of commitment possible as long as they just narrowly get in. Let's just do that. Let's shoot for the least commitment possible because we don't want to make it hard for them. We, and we sure don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Let's make sure they don't feel uncomfortable. Let's make sure that people feel super, super comfortable and that the commitment is the least possible so they'll get their butts in these chairs. That's the goal. Maybe the offerings will go up a little bit if we do that. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. If we can just get people to punch their ticket, then they'll be good. That's all we got really got to do, right? That's all we really got to do. Just get them to punch their ticket, and then we're good. It reminds me of a, a story... Again, this is a second story I'm going to read in one sermon. Okay, here we go. Another story from another commentary. Uh, It's a a Bible professor who spent some time in Scotland to do some teaching. And so now, instead of an an English person coming to America in my first story, now we've got an American Bible professor going to Scotland. Okay, here we go. While in Scotland, I attended the local church in my village of 800 people. Sunday attendance was usually about 35 people, most over the age of 50, and several of whom were Americans. But twice a year, the church held communion service. In that church, a person had to attend one of these services to keep their name on the church roll. Those weeks had triple services. As almost everyone in town showed up, this kind of cultural commitment to the church is not a relationship with Jesus. It is a tragically erroneous assumption to think that a mere formal connection to him means that one will celebrate with him in the end. Welcome to American Christianity. I don't need a relationship with Jesus. I just need uh, my ticket punched. I've talked to you about ticket punch Christianity before. I just need to figure out the least I can possibly do and still be considered part of the church. Right? Just, I just need to do the least. And don't anybody tell me to do more than that. And, and if, if, if there's any chance that I might be uncomfortable, I guarantee you I'm not going to be there. Right? Because my comfort is the most important thing, isn't it? I mean, isn't, isn't that the way of Jesus? Isn't comfort it? Com- comfort's, comfort's not it? Wait a second. Hmm. The goal of Christianity is not to get your ticket punched to heaven. If you think it is, you are mistaken. Let me in! Is that who you want to be on that day? Which side of that narrow door do you want to end up at? At the end of all things. Our church here in Little Bertha needs to be encouraging people 
to make every effort to enter in the narrow door. Can I say that again? Our church, because that, that's just, I just like quoted the words of Jesus right there. What our church ought to be about is encouraging people to make every effort to enter into the narrow door. Our job is not to encourage people to do the least amount possible to skate by. Because doing the least amount possible to skate by ends you up on that side of the door. This is not a popular message in the church today. Because we think, don't we, that we have to do whatever we can to make it as easy for everybody to get here as possible. We've been, we've been fooled into believing that the best way to get people to be in the church is to just make it easy for them to be in the church. I think we've got about a hundred years of that. I think we're doing it wrong. You know, a related, a related idea is you get what you pay for. You know, you don't put a lot of investment into something. It's not a surprise you don't get much out. When you don't expect very much of someone, is it surprising you get almost nothing out? Being a Christian is not easy. And the requirements of Christianity, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm skating on thin ice here, right? The requirements of Christianity... Let's talk about that for a second. We are not saved by doing good works. But when we are saved, you will do good works. Did you catch that? For Jesus' audience that day, you see, he was speaking to the Jews. And see, they thought they were on the right path and they expected to be at the table of salvation with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, they, they just assumed because they were Jews, because they're part of the right family that they're getting in, right? That's what they assumed. And look what else they assumed. Let's go to verse 26. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. But there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourself thrown out. People will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Now, here's the thing. Jesus' message to those self-righteous Jews applies directly to us as well. How many people ate and drank with you? How many people are going to be at the end times? Okay, I want you to think about this. How many people are going to be at the end times and they're going to say, But Jesus, I ate and drank with you. But Jesus, I, di I did it. I, I did it. I, I, I did that. I, I ate and drank with you. What do you mean? What do you mean? I'm on the outside. But, but Jesus, but Jesus, I sat in those comfortable chairs and listened to teaching about you. I listened to teaching about the word. I sat in those chairs. 
I listened to the teaching. Oh boy. There's going to be a lot of people who ate and drank and listened to the teaching of Jesus who aren't getting in the door. This teaching seems too harsh, doesn't it? It seems like that's not the message of the church. We're just supposed to love everybody and accept everybody and everybody just... Just as long as they can just, if we can just get them to say the prayer, then we're good. That's what we got to do. That, that's the goal of the church, right? Just an easy gospel. And if we do an easy gospel, then everybody will just come flocking into the church. Have you noticed, we just talked about this morning, Mary, people aren't flocking. And you asked the question in Sunday school, why aren't people flocking into church? I think I've got an answer from you from Luke 13. I think because we, we've bought the lie that an easy gospel that requires no commitment is what people are going to respond to. I think that's false. Now, don't mishear me. The good news is a gift that we receive without working. But there's commitment involved. Think about it. And I... I got some sixth graders here, so that they, I've been drilling it into you sixth graders, right? Here you go. What does the word testament mean? Yes. Super promise. I can't believe I got you to say something in church. That's fantastic. This is like a moment. I'm ex- Somebody needs to shake her hand afterwards. This is wonderful. That's great. That was fantastic. The word testament means, this is the sixth grade term. Brody coined this term. Brody's back there. This is Brody's term. Brody did. Brody coined this term. The word testament means super promise. Did you know that when you make a promise, you have to keep your end of the bargain? That's what it means to make a promise. Covenant is the adult word. But super promise is actually, I think I like it better. The old super promise and the new super promise. Please turn in your Bibles to the new super promise, Matthew chapter 4. I think that's fantastic. Because we have disconnected the word testament from what it actually means. It's a covenant. The new covenant in my blood. I just said it. And you didn't register it in your brain. It's a super promise. And it's not just one way. Now you haven't realized it yet, but this is a straight up holiness sermon I'm giving you right now. Straight up holiness. We're supposed to do what Jesus said. Like we're supposed to live as a disciple, a follower of Jesus, because it's a super promise. And it's not one way. We've been teaching Christianity that in such a way that Jesus was always going to love you. All you got to do is just, just, just do the least you possibly can and be super comfortable about it. It's a super promise. It goes both ways. Do we want to see the church renewed? 
It's going to sound countercultural, but I'm going to say, we got to start expecting people to be Christians. That's crazy, isn't it? We're actually supposed to expect people to do what Jesus said. That's so, that's so cute. You actually think I'm supposed to actually, like, look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, I'm actually supposed to love my enemy? That's so cute. Because that can't possibly be what it is. But what, what I actually got to do is just, just do the least I possibly can. And if I just tell everybody, Christianity is super, super easy. You do the least you possibly can. Then people are just going to flock to the church. Have you noticed people aren't flocking? We've got to change the way we're doing this because we've got to get back to what Jesus taught. It's a narrow door. It's not a huge wide open door that we can just everybody in. I don't get to decide who goes in, by the way. That's Jesus. I'm also saying Jesus is the one who said it's a narrow door. He didn't say, just, just, you know, just make the least possible. And, and here's what's so amazing. If you ask someone, are you a Christian right now? And you know what they'll say? Yes, I believe in Jesus. Now think about the way we've presented the gospel as a church for the past 50, 100 years, okay? We've been super emphasizing John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we have distilled Christianity down to this one thing. All you got to do is believe in Jesus. Okay? We've distilled Christianity down to that. Just all you got to do is believe. Believe that God is real and you're in. That's what 50, 100 years of preaching the church. If we, just, if we just get people to believe that God is real, that's good enough. And maybe if they believe God is real, they'll get their butts in the chairs, right? That's what we've, we've, we've bought into this. It's false. Have you read James? I just preached this at West Truex's funeral. The demons believe God is real. And tremble. Hey, y'all, believing that God is real is not going to get you to heaven. Demons believe God is real. They're going to end up in the burning lake of sulfur. Believing God is real. Like, just that he's, like, that's it. It's not enough. And that is such a, such a false gospel that the church has been preaching for 50 years. We've got something to say as a holiness church. And what we have to say is not you're saved because you do good works, but when you're saved, you're going to do good works. Your whole life's going to change. And if it doesn't, if you don't have fruit, heads up. Because that's going to be you. This is the message we've got to get to Bertha and Hewitt and Eagle Bend and Wadena. This is the message we've got to get out there. The door is narrow. Christianity is not a, rela- not a religion, it's a relationship. You've got to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. And what's that relationship look like? Well, the kingdom of God is where you live as if Jesus is your king. Did you get that? Uh, Let me rephrase that. That's called holiness. (laughs) Living with Jesus as your king is what Christians are supposed to be doing. 
Every decision is, is your, your thought is taken captive to Christ. Every moment of your life, you, you evaluate against Jesus is my king. What does that mean for this moment? Jesus is my king. What does that mean for this conversation? Jesus is my king. What does that mean for this thing I'm about to put on Facebook? Jesus is my king. What does that mean as I teach release time? Covenant. Super promise. And it's not one way. That's what it, it's. We have failed as a church because we've made it just this super easy thing. It. it, it it's frustrating to me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I've read this one before, but I want to read again. So, Dave, can you skip to that one? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Okay, so right there, just that first section is what usually gets quoted, right? Salvation is by grace. Yes, it is. It's through faith. Yes, it is. It's not from yourself. It's the gift of God. So it's not by works. Absolutely true. But you got to read the last verse. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. People since the Protestant Reformation have been quoting Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 all the time and leaving verse 10 out. You can't leave verse 10 out. When you have received the gift of salvation, when you have, been, when you have received grace from God and you receive it through faith, by believing, right? You do have to believe in Jesus. What we have failed to do is say, what kind of belief? Because the demons believe that God's real. It's not that kind of belief. It's the kind of belief that says, God is real, and everything about me is different now, because I know he's real. It's a belief that changes us. That is the kind of belief that gets you into the narrow door. Belief that changes us. And it's possible, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's possible because God renews us. And we have access to the power of God to do this. And when we do that, we gain the possibility of life to the full. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The narrow door of salvation is not about a ticket-punch religion. It's not about comfort. It's about entering into a relationship with Jesus as your king and living your life like he's actually your king. That's what Christianity is. We've got to stop watering it down. Watering it down is the opposite of what needs to happen. It's a covenant A covenant, a super promise is what it is. So I end this message today. What side of the narrow door are you going to be on? This is a strange verse to end on, 
but I think it's important. First Timothy chapter four, verse eight, because we're all into like training our bodies, right? For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. How much time are you spending training your physical body? How much more valuable is it to train for godliness? Entering through the narrow door is about recognizing in every moment of every day that Jesus is your king and living your life with that mindset all the time. It's impossible to do in your own strength. You can't do it. But it's not impossible when you rely on God. And he'll give you the strength as you train for it. As you take seriously that it's a narrow door. What if the church in America took seriously that the door's narrow? Think about that. Because we've been not taking that seriously for a while. We've been thinking it's super wide. I mean, just practically speaking, the way that we've presented Christianity to this country as a church, we have been presenting a wide door, not a narrow one. And it's a problem. I think that's the reason people are leaving, because they know it's not. And so then we're presenting something that isn't even Jesus at that point. See that? And then we ought to be shrinking. We have an opportunity to change this community and the communities around us for Jesus Christ. We can do it, but we've got to have the right mindset. This isn't just about getting people to say a prayer, like the salvation prayer. Like That's not it. It's part of it, but it's only one step among a much larger journey of super promise. <laughs> it's, it's a super promise, people. So, last thing. If you've been stirred by this, if you've been stirred to think, I'm not sure which side of that door I'm on, there's things you can do to change this. You can train right now for godliness. There are, one little example, you can ask somebody that you know, maybe two or three other people, let's just read the Bible together. Let's commit together to reading the Bible and doing a little journal thing, right? And that's it. Like, we're going to commit to reading the Bible together and to seeking God together. Like, we're going to hold each other up. Do you have people in your life that hold you up? Do you have people in your life that, that are willing to help you train for godliness? If the answer is no, let's find some people. Let's do this thing. It's a narrow door. Jesus, it is my prayer that you would remind us every day about the narrowness of the door and that we would be so excited and on fire to just live our life with you as king and how everything can change if we do that. Encourage us, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord. You are the Lord. Amen.